0: not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught up in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. Thank you. So I'm going to preach off of this just because I know I can touch things a lot. And so hopefully this will stop me from moving and stuff. We'll see. We'll see how it works. Um, but before we get in, let me let me pray. Uh, Father, Lord, we come before you as uh, Lord as unclean people who are sinful. And God, we just confess to you our sin from this past week, from this morning, Lord. God, we thank you that in Christ. We can be seen as righteous. And Lord, as we open up your word today, God, may we just see it as as what it is. The the very breath, the very words of the living God. Uh, the consuming fire, as the author in Hebrews describes you. Lord, we pray, God, we pray for our children. Lord, we pray that for their salvation, God. Lord, give us grace and wisdom as parents. Help us, God, to raise our kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Lord, give us grace in our marriages as the the conflict that just arises with two sinful people that live in together. God, give us patience give us understanding. Lord we are we are just beggars of your grace and we are um, pleading with you and we know that you are faithful and that you are generous and that you're good. we just pray for this morning and this week God may you just give us grace and we are all facing different things. may you just show up faithful as you are. And God we ask this in your son's name. Amen. So, welcome. If you haven't been here before or if you haven't been here for a little bit, we've been going through uh, the book of Galatians, right? Some of us are like, yeah, we've been going through that a while. Well, we're almost through uh, in a kind of a... uh, Yeah, we're almost through. Let me just leave it at that. But if you recall, let me just give a, a refresher here. So the Apostle Paul, he started the churches. In Galatia, the region of Galatia, which is on the Mediterranean, um, where kind of present-day Turkey, that kind of area is. He started it. He was the one that was there to preach the gospel first. Uh, People were converted there. And then Paul stayed a little bit, and then he moved on. He continued on his missionary journey. But when he left, soon after, false teachers came in. And they were teaching falsely that the Galatians had to keep the Mosaic Law in order to be saved, and in order to continue to follow Christ. Eventually, the Apostle Paul gets wind of this. He hears this, and so he writes back, which is this letter here, the letter to the Galatians. And we have seen so far, Paul has uh, pretty strongly preached the gospel, showed all the the false teachers that it was false. He's got some really harsh words towards them. Why? Because the false teaching was damning. It was lies. It was lies. And so he defended the gospel that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. He's defended his apostleship, his authority as an apostle, in order to defend the gospel. He's pointed to the Old Testament, to Abraham, the example of Abraham, how this is the gospel. This has always been the good news. This has always been salvation, has been through faith in Christ. He's talked about uh, this past week that we looked at, or this last passage we looked at, with um, walking by the Spirit, we obey by walking by the Spirit. We looked at that, and then if you recall, we ended with verse 25, where he gives us this picture. Of we, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And there's this picture of like a, an army, right, marching in line. That if we live by the Spirit, if we're Christians, we have the Spirit, we should keep in step with the Spirit, stay in line in the marching line with the Spirit. I also mentioned that this has the picture of the community as well, that each of us need to keep in step with the Spirit, listen to the cadence of the Spirit, and we will stay in line together. As Paul uses that, and he transitions here to our passage today, As uh, um, how am I forgetting your name, Max? <laughs> wow. That hurts a lot. I know, it hurts me. <laughs> but like Max says, that's real... <laughs> That's embarrassing let's let's transition here let's move on so as he said and we get this 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 uh, this command within the community and that's what we'll see today and we see here that Paul let me he, he tells us our responsibility as church family members to each other who are struggling in sin and I am very thankful that God through Paul, describes the battle that we go through. It's not easy. He talks about how the the desires of the flesh are opposed against the desires of the spirit and they fight within believers. And I believe all of us can say, yup, amen, every day, every single day, every morning, I wake up and it's right there. And I'm thankful that Paul lays that in, there. that this is a reality. But he tells us, he doesn't just end there, he tells us in our passage today what we're supposed to do, our responsibility to each other. And he tells us, as we'll see, is to restore each other who are in sin. To restore each other who are in sin. But before we dive into this, I want us to consider why this is such an important and serious command by God. To restore one another in sin. And to do that, let's turn to uh, 1 Chronicles 13 in the Old Testament. 1 Chronicles 13. I'm going to give just a quick little background just so he doesn't feel like we're jumping into nothing here. So Israel, they had this wooden box that they created, that God told them to create. It was uh, There's gold on it. There's different kind of precious stones on it. There was a different design skeleton on it. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. And God said that he, his, his glory, his presence, rested there during that time with Israel. So this was the glory of God. This was significant. This was the rallying point for Israel was this Ark. A symbol, if not even the physical presence of God, symbolized by this Ark. It was massive. And before, sometime before this, we get you in our passage here today, it got stolen by their enemies, the Philistines. They stole it. And by the hand of God, if you recall, the, the tumors and the rats, all that, it was brought back to Israel. By the hand of God, it was brought back to Israel. But they didn't just then brought it back Israel. They didn't just set it up and present it again. But they put it in safekeeping for some time. They kind of, all right, let's put it in safekeeping. It's been through a lot. Let's put in safekeeping for a specific time when they will present it again and the glory of God with it. This passage we'll look at is that time. It's that time when they decided, King David said, it's time. Let's bring it back. Let's bring the glory of God back. The, the representation, the glory of God with Israel, right? It's this time. So that's what we're going to read. So 1 Chronicles chapter 13. Um, starting in verse uh, five. Read this with me. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to lead to bring the Ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. Say that fast. And David and, and all Israel went up to Bala, that is to the Kiriath-Jerim that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and, and Uzzah, and ah- 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 yes. ah- 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 I, there you go, you know what? We're driving the cart. I'm sorry. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. This was huge. The glory of God, the Ark of Covenant was coming back. Think of uh, uh, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, right? through like all, like I'm not sure, is that New York City, like through all, there's a huge, it's just a huge festival. Think of that, but far more significant. Far more important. The Ark of the Covenant was coming back. People were dancing, people were going nuts. This is huge. Verse 9. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the Ark for the oxen stumbled. So they're going... And Mildus prayed, and Uzzah, he's a part of this. He's with the oxen. He's with the cart in some way. Probably really proud that he's a part of this. He's a part of the Ark of the Covenant that comes back. And it says the oxen stumbled. The Ark of the Covenant was, was about to fall off, and Uzzah reached out to study it. Right? Hero, verse 10. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down. Because he put his hand, out his hand, into the ark, and he died there before God. God killed him. God executed him in front of the whole watching nation. During this massive parade, God executed this man. Why? Because he sinned against the holy living God. Let me explain that. So in God's law, the clan of the Levites, they were the ones, uh, in a specific clan within the Levites, I'm going to kill this name, the Kohathites, they were the ones responsible to be carrying the ark, to be carrying the the different holy things, to be carrying it. But the thing is, they could not touch it. It was very clear. God says, you touch it, you will die. So how they were supposed to be carrying it is with poles. The ark would be with different rings and it'll have poles. And that's the only thing they could touch were these poles. And if you look at our passage, they weren't even doing that. They were using a cart with oxen. So right from the beginning, they were doing it wrong. They were disobeying God. And Uzzah knew he could not touch it. He cannot touch the ark. He will die. It stumbles. He touches it. He dies. He sinned against God. And to us, it might be like, the guy was just trying to keep the ark on there. But it was a, it was arrogance. Why? Because Uzzah thought that his hand was better than the mud. That his hand, the hand of a sinful man, was better than the, the mud. God's creation, which literally obeys God. Obeys God's design. It turns. It rotates. The weather obeys God. The universe obeys God. But yet it's man who has rebelled. And Uzzah presumed that his hand was better than the mud. And he was wrong. God said, do not touch it. He touched it. He knew for sure he couldn't touch it. He sinned against God. Sin is serious. One guy has called it cosmic treason against the sovereign God. I was watching this conference uh, with a man, I'm not sure if he knows his name, R.C. Sproul, He's recently passed away, but it was a conference in 2014, and it was during the question and answer section. And someone asked this question to like the to a panel, and R.C. Sproul is up there. The question was this: Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, Adam, Adam and Eve, was God's wrath so severe and so long lasting? And so it was kind of dead for a little bit. And then R.C. Sproul spoke up. He said, time out, time out, time out. He said this. He said, this creature from the dirt defied the everlasting living God. After that day, God already told him that he would die if he sinned against him. And he did sin, but that, that man, Adam, he lived another day, and he lived another day. And the curse from the sin was long lasting for Adam, but it was very severe for the one that seduced him, Satan. His head would be crushed by the heel, right? And so R.C. Sproul continues on. He says, and he asks the question to the group, and the punishment was too severe, and he looks out at the people and he says, What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? He says, we don't know who God is. He says, the question shouldn't be, why was it so severe? It should have been, why was it infinitely more severe? That a creature from the dirt would defy the living God who created him. So I I present that just to remind us the severity of the offense of sin. But praise God that the sovereign God that we have rebelled against is gracious and good that we can fall at his feet for mercy and that through faith in Christ we can be forgiven. But sin is serious. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that we can grieve the Holy Spirit with our sin. And that's why, as we look at this passage today, why it's such a high calling, why it is a command that we should restore each other when we're in sin. It is important. Each of our stories have been marred by sin. as we, our stories have been, we have marred people with sin. It is serious. It has destroyed families. Sin is offensive to God. And so while we look at that, now let's look at our passage. and this is what Paul's main idea is. Take ownership of your personal holiness and the holiness of your church family. Take ownership of your personal holiness. In the holiness of your church family. So let's dive in. So the first point is this: we'll look at taking ownership of the holiness of your church family. So verse 26. I'm gonna blow my nose, and I apologize. I guess I'll just dabble. But here we go. Verse, uh, verse 26. If you're in First Chronicles, we're gonna have to jump back to Galatians. So Paul ends that, the chapter 5, with let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So Paul sets up this contrast. So he's about to jump into the command to restore each other, to be carrying uh, each other's burdens. And he sets up this contrast instead. He says, do not be conceited. Do not be so self-centered. Don't be so focused on yourself. He says, he describes what happens when we are conceited. He says, number one, we provoke one another. We irritate each other if we're self-conceited. And I believe we can all say amen, right? We all know the person or the people who are so full of themselves, right? I hope I say this and I'm not one of those people you think of. But they're so full of themselves. They forget that what they have has been given to them. They forget their weaknesses and just overlook it. They forget what other people have done for them and they just think "It's, it's all been me. It's all been me. They're conceited. And that... Irritates us when we see someone like that. Amen. Does that not irritate you? Maybe I'm the only one. It irritates me. He goes on. When we're conceited, that second point, he says, envying one another. If we're self-centered, if we see someone else who has something that we don't have, whether it's something like a physical commodity, like a house we don't have, gets to go to vacations we don't have, or it gets this that we don't have, a boat, whatever we don't have, we start envying. We get, we get like, oh. I hate that person because they have that. And a lot of times we start, we, we glory, we enjoy their failures because we feel better. If we're conceited, we enjoy people kind of struggling. So, like, yeah, I feel a little better about myself. Paul says, do not be conceited. Do not do that. So he sets up this contrast that Paul writes in Philippians 2. This might be familiar. He writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And that kills me every time. I shouldn't say kills. That just gets me every time. Count others as more significant than yourself. Does anyone else struggle with that besides me? Count someone else. Like, hey, you are more important than me. You are more significant than me. And Paul ends with, he says, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul sets that contrast of do not be conceited. Rather, verse 1, coming to this, he commands us, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Do you catch that? This is a command. This isn't like, hey, if you feel like it, bro, uh, get this done. This is a command. We restore, we are to restore the members of our church family who are sinned. And that sin is premeditated or not. Uh, if it's a temptation that we thought we could we could endure but we couldn't. And we, we sin within that. If it's just a choice of gratifying the desires of the flesh rather than walking by the Spirit. He says any sin. All sin. It's not just the big ones like adultery, theft, murder. Any sin. Any sin he says. One author has said this. To trifle with sin... To ignore it under the guise of love or to fail for any other reason to cleanse the church of it is disastrous. To preach against sin but not to enforce that preaching by confronting sin in the lives of individuals in the fellowship is to disconnect preaching from life and to turn it into an unproductive exercise in oratory. Restoring each other who are in sin. And Paul says, Who is to do this, right? He says, You who are spiritual. Is Paul making this division between those who are spiritual, and those who are not? Not at all. That's not all. The spiritual, if you just within the context, just talking about walking by the spirit. Those who are walking by the spirit, those who are choosing to walk by the spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh, evidenced by the fruit of the spirit, those are those who should help those who are struggling, who are stuck in sin, who are sinning. It's not the spiritual is not based on age, isn't based on maturity, it's based on are you walking by the spirit or are you gratifying the desires of the flesh? He says, those who are walking by the Spirit restore those who are in sin. In this restore, it has the picture, those in the medical field will like this. It's the picture with that word is setting a broken bone. Right? I, I see Velda, I see Seth, I see uh, um, Carrie, and other people who are in the medical field, right? If you don't set the bone, what happens? Heals improperly, can be kind of screwy. Um, if a uh, your shoulder pops up. Anyone had like a joint pop on their shoulder or a joint pop up? You don't put it in, it, it's very ineffective, right? It's just not as effective as it could be. So the, this picture is of restoring it, fixing it. James, um, in the, the end of James' letter, he says this, just to kind of give the, 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 the gravity of this. He says, my brothers, this is the last thing he says. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings them back, let him know that whoever brings him back, a sinner from his wandering, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Take ownership of the holiness of our church family. Now Paul qualifies this. He qualifies this command. So let me do that here. Number one, we're commanded to restore brothers and sisters in Christ. He does not say, to restore unbelievers. When unbelievers sin, what else should we expect? They're they're merely living out their unredeemed uh, natures. And so He does not at all say, "Hey, chastise the unbeliever." He doesn't say that. What would we expect? If they're an unbeliever, they're going to sin. They're, they're slaves to sin, is what the Bible says. There's there's no way. There's no other reason to expect differently. And so He's saying specifically restore believers. Yes, when an unbeliever sins and they feel the consequences, that might be a great time to share the gospel, but it does not say we're supposed to restore them, but it's to the believer, our brothers and sisters in Christ and our church family, family, that we restore. The second point, this, is this action is to be done in a spirit of gentleness, a spirit of gentleness. And this ties, again, with those who are supposed to do it, are the spiritual, those walking by the spirit. Gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. If we're walking by the Spirit, we're not going to gratify that desire of pride. We're not going to gratify the desire of arrogance. We're going to choose to walk by the Spirit even when we're trying to restore and confront a brother or sister in Christ about their sin. Our flesh would love to jump on this and say, Hey, hey you're a whore about this. You need to you, you work on this. And at that time, we're just pumping up our own arrogance. Our flesh would love that as an opportunity. But Paul says, those who are spiritual, those who are walking by the Spirit, is to be done in gentleness. Ephesians 4, speak the truth in love. Um, In 2 Thessalonians, Paul talking about um, someone who's been sinning, he says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. The purpose is for restoration. It's not to chastise a person and just beat him up. The whole point in confronting them is for the purpose of restoring them. And uh, have you noticed? And maybe maybe it's just me, but hopefully not, and not. But have you noticed that those sins in other people's lives are the ones that we ourselves struggle with? The ones that we're sensitive to in other people's lives are usually the ones that we ourselves struggle with. And so we have a choice when we come and confront our brothers and sisters in Christ. To either receive that humility that we also struggle with this, and so we come in a spirit of gentleness, or we have the choice of hardening our hearts with arrogance and overlooking our sin and condemning our brother sister, and sister in Christ. We have that choice humility in the spirit of gentleness, or hardening our hearts with arrogance and beating down our brothers and sisters in Christ. The last thing that Paul t- takes on here is uh, keep keep watch yourself lest you too be tempted. In this idea, the grammar as I brought before, it's continuance. Continue keeping watch. Do not stop keeping watch. It is tempting for a pride to rise up. Do not stop, he says. Keep watch. Keep watch of your motives. Discern your motives in this. What is going on? Because if we go and we're not keeping watch of ourselves, it is so easy. For myself, Anything. They just had that pride suddenly sneak in. Paul says, keep watch. Do not stop. Keep watch on yourself. Again, our flesh would love it if a little arrogance, a little self-righteousness seeps in while we do this. So on that note, this isn't a command to be nosy in people's business, but rather is to be aware, and to care, and to step in and engage. Now, I want to hear, and this kind of came up in our Sunday school class, is to address the most popular Bible verse that's preached everywhere in our culture. You know what else I'm thinking of? Do not judge me. You judge me, bro, right? Do you, everyone hear that everywhere? No one hears it. There we go. Yeah. But yeah, I, I assume everyone has heard that. Do not judge me. Do not judge me. If you want to, you can fly over to Matthew chapter seven verse one. This is where Jesus says that. Matthew chapter seven verse one. Do not judge me. Um, that's the command that right afterwards Jesus describes, and he gives us this picture of a man who has an eight-foot two-by-four in his eye, and he's trying to take out the speck of sawdust in his brother's eye. Right? There's that picture. Um, everyone knows like they have like. You, you must get stuck in your eyes and you trying to get it out. you can't really do anything. Uh, Casey makes fun of me because I'll be working on something. I get a little speck in my eye. I'm like, I'm done. Like the world is over unless I get this out of my eye. And can you imagine someone with a, a two by four? Hey let me let me get that out of your eye. So this is a crazy picture of Jesus is telling us. But the thing is the context here is Jesus saying, of a self-righteous person who makes themselves the judge over someone, that's what he's saying. Do not be; a, you're not the judge. But continue in that passage. What does Jesus say? He says, first repent. Take that two by four of your eye and leave it at that. No, then he says, once you've repented and, and taken care of the sin in your own eye, then help your brother with his eye, that speck. And so, do not judge. We'll continue in that passage because Jesus says, repent. And then help your brother with that speck. And so, yes, do not judge, you're not the judge. God, Jesus is the judge. But examine yourself, keep watch yourself, repent. Because there is sin in our lives. Repent and then help your brother and sister in Christ. Because you'll far more likely to do that in a spirit of gentleness and walking by the Spirit than if you don't take care of the two by four, and that's in your own eye. And so we see that that, that context, the understanding of that passage does not give the idea that we're not supposed to help each other or confront each other the exact opposite. First, keep an eye on ourselves, repent of our sin, then we go and we help our brother and sister in Christ. So, restoring our brother and sister in Christ is a great service. It is a great service to the other. And that sounds weird, and that sounds weird to me because I've been confronted a lot in my sin. I'm a sinful person, and I don't know if I do it very blatantly or what. But I've had multiple people come up to me, and uh, not calling one out, but just, um, hey, Alex, you need to work on this. And it's like, you know what? Thank you, because you're right. I do need to work on this. And I'm blind to this. Sin blinds us. Thank you. At that time, I may not say that, but a week later, I might say that. At that time, it's like, ugh, who does this person think there is? But if our brother or sister in Christ is coming to us in a spirit of gentleness, and they're pressing down, on a, a blind spot of ours. Hey, brother, I kind of observe you've been kind of harsh with your wife here in public. I um, just want you to kind of, that that's noticeable and you might want to just kind of see what's happening there. In just a gentle, humble way, we should receive that. Like, okay, you're right. I should at least listen to you and pray that God would open my eyes to this. It's a great service. We need each other. Verse 2, Paul then adds on this. So taking ownership of our, the holiness of our church family, he adds on, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So bear one another's burdens. That which weighs us down, bear one another's burdens. And this idea has bearing with endurance. It's not just one time, but we're there for the long haul. We're here to bear it with you for the long haul. What does this look like? And I love this verse. This is First Thessalonians Chapter five, verse fourteen. Because, like, okay, what does it mean to, to to bear each other's burdens? And Paul writes this to the Thessalonians. He says this, and I, I just like it because it gives us kind of it just flushes it on, it gives us a picture. He says, "We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all." Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, but be patient with them all. And we get this picture of bearing one another's burdens. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, and be patient with all. Bearing with one another's burdens, being engaged, not superficially involved, not intrusively, but making our availability known to others that we are here. If you need something, I am here. And Paul says, he ends that if we do this, we fulfill the law of Christ. And that might seem kind of weird, but it's. Very similar to chapter 5, verse 14, if you remember, where Paul says, uh, verse 14 of chapter 5, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And so Paul is saying that when we love one another, we're fulfilling the, the moral demands of the law. But remember, in Christ, we are made righteous. It is not by doing this that we're made righteous, but we're following what's in accord with God's character. In this law of Christ in uh, John, First John and John, Jesus specifically says, "Here's a new command I give you, which is not new at all." He says, "It's to love one another." But it's interesting, and let me just make this point before we move on. He says, "The law of Christ, the law of Christ." Why does he use that that verbiage "law"? It's because Jesus is Lord. He is our Savior, and praise God that we can be forgiven and we have mercy and grace through Christ. But do not forget that He is Lord. He is the living God. He is Lord over all. Either we'll acknowledge that and submit to Him in faith and repentance now, or, as it says in Philippians, your knee will bow in the end, but you'll be forced to and you'll be punished for it. He is Lord, whether we like it or not. Whether we people acknowledge it or not, He is Lord. And I think we do like it because he's a gracious and, and, and merciful and generous Lord. But he is Lord. And he does give us commands on how we should live. Not that we're made right with God by these, these commands, but he's directing us. This is how you should live. In response to my relationship with you, here's how you live. And so when we, we fulfill this law, we fulfill loving each other by what? Bearing with one another's burdens or bearing one another's burdens. And restoring one another. So we're commanded by our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Messiah, to take ownership of our church family's holiness in gentleness. In gentleness. And then Paul says, uh, here's the second part of it. This is all founded on, this this idea of taking ownership of the holiness of our family, our church family, is founded on us taking ownership of our own personal holiness. If you're not taking ownership of your own personal holiness, do not even think that you're in a place of that spiritual or in a gentleness to help a church family member with holiness. So Paul says, look at uh, verse two, or verse three, I'm sorry. He says, for if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Ouch, right? What humiliation. Maybe you've been in this place. I've been in this place before. When you walk around, You think you're the big cheese, right? I'm the big cheese in this place. And when everyone except you knows, what a fool, right? What a fool. I've been in that position before, and it's not fun. Uh, Paul says, you're deceiving yourself. When you think you're something, when you're nothing, you deceive yourself. My first question was, is there anyone who is something? Is there someone who is something? No. Everything that's been given to you, everything that's been given to me has been given by God. Or anything we have has been given by God. It is by God's grace we do anything good. Let me uh, apply that here um, to this passage. Number one, two ways we, we can see this. We think we're something when we're nothing. If we think we can address other people's sin without the spirit of gentleness. Without this humility. That's when we think we're something. We overlook our sin. Number two. We think we're something when we're nothing. When we read this passage and we think we're the ones who are going to restore others. And we don't think about other people restoring us. If we think this command is only one side and we're the ones restoring. We think we're something when we're nothing. Because this has to do with us as well. That people are going to be needing to restore us because we're in sin. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Blind spots, right? Who hears blind spots? If you don't raise your hand, I guess you're blind to not. Yeah, <laughs> fun, fun. But listen to this. Uh, um, in Revelation, the five letters, or is it the seven churches? Um, that's embarrassing. I should have looked it up before I said it, or just remembered. It's the church of Laodicea. In the letter to the church. Jesus, the living God, writes this. Imagine this being written to us. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They were blind. They thought they had it. They thought they had it all. But Jesus says, you don't realize that you're pitiable, you're poor, you're wretched, and you're blind. How do we prevent this? Exactly what Paul's commanding here, to restore one another. The writers in Hebrews says this, but exhort one another every day as long as it is a call today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another every day. And sometimes that it's kind of a harder conversation than it sometimes is to confront someone, to restore them from their sin. Paul continues. Verse... Four, But let each one So remember he's continuing Take ownership of your church family But that is founded on you Taking ownership of your own personal holiness Verse 4 he says But each, let each one test his own work And then his reason to boast Will be in himself alone and not his neighbor Test yourself Examine your holiness Before you go out Trying to confront someone Restore another person Test your own work Examine your holiness Take the eight foot two by four out of your own eye before you help your brother and sister in Christ with a speck in their eye. So Paul says, examine yourself first and then you'll have reason to boast in, or a, a, maybe a better translation, to rejoice. Why? Because God has done a work in your life. He has opened your eyes to the sin in your life and he has given you grace to kill that sin. You can rejoice that he has done that in your life. Not to boast in your neighbor. As if you did something great for your neighbor for confronting their sin. But he says, examine yourself first because then when you examine yourself and you repent of your sin, you'll have a reason to rejoice because by God's grace, you've seen that sin and you're working to kill it. And that you can rejoice. He then ends it, verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. And that might seem kind of, Paul, you just said about bearing one another's load. Yes, of course. But he's saying here, ultimately, in the end, it will be you who will have to account for you. He leaves no room for playing the victim. But my church family didn't care about me. Is that wrong? It is very wrong, and our church family should care. But Paul is saying, even if that's the case, when it comes down to it, when you're standing before God, you are the one who has to give account for yourself. You are responsible for your own personal holiness. Your church family shares a responsibility in that, in an aspect, but you ultimately will be the one to stand before the living God, the consuming fire, as the writer of Hebrews describes God. So take an ownership, take ownership of the holiness of our church family, but first take ownership of your own personal holiness. Now, I want to end today I want to describe a scene from a movie. It's a movie, um, a World War II movie. And in it, is, you probably guys have it, uh, Saving Private Ryan. And there's a specific scene that I want to, to share. Um, so, the movie, if you haven't seen it, it's about World War II. A group of guys are going out looking for this one soldier named Ryan. And the reason why is because Ryan, I'm not sure if it was two, three brothers, or what it is, but he had a bunch of other brothers in the war, and they all died. And so the government wanted to bring Ryan home to his mom so his mom wouldn't be grieved even more. So they send out a a group of guys looking for him. Eventually they find him, but at the end there, they're in a battle with the Nazis. And they're trying to hold this bridge. And there's one of the soldiers of the group. His name's Upham. If I'm saying that right, up on believe, is how it's said. And he was the one that was going between the guys who were stationed around this house, protecting the bridge, bringing ammunition to them. He was the one that was supposed to supply it, run around, running between the buildings and stuff and giving it to them. And at one point, he comes to a house. And this is all war-torn, so the uh, there's walls are blown apart. And he knows there's two guys in this group that's up in the stairs. And he knows that like, he needs to get ammunition for them. But he sees these two Nazi soldiers coming. So he hides behind one of the blown out walls. And he watches as the two Nazi soldiers goes up the stairs to the upper room where he knows that his two buddies are. And probably one of the hardest scenes in a movie I've ever seen is when that, those two soldiers go upstairs. His two buddies are in the room They shoot one of the Nazi soldiers. The Nazi soldier shoots one of the other guys. And then there's a wrestle to the death between the two. And Upam is down below with ammunition. And he starts to slowly walk up the staircase. He's got a gun in his hand. And all he can hear is his buddy yelling, screaming, kind of crying out for help. As he's fighting with a Nazi soldier. And Upham is just walking up the stairs, kind of whimpering, scared to go up there, and he's just slowly going up. Eventually the noise ends, and you see Upham just in the stairs with his gun kind of fall down to the ground on the stairs. And the Nazi soldier comes out of the upper room, just looks at Upham, and Upham had his gun already, he took his hand off. And just kind of stepped back. And the Nazi soldiers kind of walked away. So let me ask you. When your brother or sister in Christ is upstairs wrestling with sin. Are you just going to sit there in the hallway? Are we just going to let them die? Are we going to let their family get wrecked by the sin? Or are we going to step in? Are we going to confront, have an awkward conversation and restore our brother and sister in Christ? Or are we just going to sit in the hallway, listen, maybe watch, but not step in? Take ownership of a holiness of our church family and take ownership of our own personal holiness. Let me pray and then we're going to transition to partake in the Lord's Supper together. Father, God, may you give us eyes, Lord, to see sin as you see sin. Lord, may we, God, may we be convicted. Lord, forgive me for not being convicted. Help us, Lord, open our eyes to our sin. Lay our our hearts bare before us that we may see the sin in our lives. Lord, give us grace. And give us a a strong desire to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would have those, those awkward conversations that we would risk and we would step in and we would gently help to see a possible sin. May we do this in humility Lord, give us grace. And God, with all this, we stand thankful that we are forgiven in you, Lord, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Lord, may we walk out of here today with the, the, the gravity of sin, but may we walk out here at the same time with a skip in our step, knowing that Jesus Christ has paid it all, and we are free, and we are saved. And in that we can glory and rejoice. And Father, I I pray that we take those both ideas of sin and our freedom of Christ as we partake um, of the bread and the juice together. Amen.